gave you the idea to boil shellfish? Well, it's disgusting if you don't. So I just thought I would try anything I could. <laughs> like who who even opened who even opened a lobster in the first place? And, and just didn't give up. <laughs> yeah, just kept on going until they realized they could eat it. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this time, Will? Nathan, this time we're going to talk about being mindful of what your inspirations are saying to you and what it is that you're saying back to them. Before we get started with today's topic, I wanted to highlight something very cool that happened growing out of our previous episode, which is that someone in the Google Plus community took a picture of their visual inspiration for a project they're working on and posted it. And it was very cool. That is so great. Yeah. Following the Hindmarch expert advice, I would say. (laughs) But yeah, that was awesome. And so I think that'd be a cool thing for people to do if they want to share what they're working on. Take a picture of your your books and notes. And I think he has like a, he has a a video, like a, a DVD case in there and, you know, multimedia inspiration for, I think, a a scenario adventure thing cool. that they're working on. It's easy for us to say, like, drop by the community, but here's a nice concrete, like, if you want to share what you're working on, put a picture up in the community and we can tell you how, how neat it looks and what ideas. Because I know for me, looking at that picture was like, oh, here's what I would do with those inspirations. Right. And then see how that's different from, yeah, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I think people should feel free to take photos of their notebooks, their uh, Interior or exterior, mm-hmm. redact anything they want to redact. It's totally cool, right? This isn't about this isn't about accountability of that sort yet. This is that's not what that's not what this is for. Yeah, it's just it's, to to, yeah. to show off in the sense of we all have different processes. Yeah, and seeing someone else's process is intrinsically interesting, I think, and can also be very valuable for you to be like, oh, I could do that. I never thought of it doing it that way. Right. Or I'm doing it that way, and I'm relieved to know that I am not alone. <laughs> yes, these are equally valid things. <laughs> So, yes, please please drop by to search Design Games Podcast on Google Plus and leave us a visual or textual note about your process and how you get into a new design. And we'd love to see those and share them and, and discuss if you have questions or other methods that you'd like to, uh, to share with us that we haven't addressed. And uh, community people, feel free to uh, click those plus one buttons and uh, pat people on the back via the comment section so that we can all benefit from the fact that one of the reasons we show this stuff off is to find out that our work is helping others do their work. So I think that's great. But I do think it would be fascinating to consider more closely, not just in games, but especially in games, Mm. what it is that is influencing our designs. Yeah. Both that we are sure is influencing them, but also that we're not sure is influencing them. Yeah. But the things that, that are so resonant or are so seeped into the game culture, whichever game culture you're in, mm-hmm. that they are having an impact and steering parts of your design for good or ill. There is a certain canon that forms over time, especially with prestige television, right? Like so you have to watch The Wire. You have to watch uh, Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Right, like you have to watch Mad Men, like those. So certainly, uh, uh, there that you know the canon is a thing, mm-hmm. um, but also certainly um, it's shifting all the time, and, yeah. and it and it. Whereas, like in cinema, it kind of accrues over time, and mm-hmm. in TV, I feel like it slides forward slowly. Like so things kind of drop off the back, drop end. off the back end of it. Just mm-hmm. and I think historically, that's been due to access, mm-hmm. because when Lucy is not on television, or when you have to wait for the for for your local syndication run to get to the episode with the chocolate factory 
right? Or whatever. Right. Um, but like what happens when... When it's all available all the time. Right. Like, and, Yeah. Oh my God, you haven't seen... Right. Well, like if you want to dive... I mean, I feel like the dive into non-A-list, not even A-list, but non-culturally resonant, non-remembered TV, like that is a broad pool. Like, yeah. Like when you listen, like if you're the... St- like every year... There's always a news story around sweeps time, or may not sweeps anymore, but around the, the time when they when they pitch TV studios, pitch for advertisers, like because that still happens. Yeah. Whenever that happens, there's there's usually news stories about how many shows there are. Right. Because it's a shrinking advertising pool. So you know, there's like 200 shows pitched a year or something, and like 70 of them get a pilot, and then. 30 of them. Uh, yeah, it's like 20, 20 to 25 generally a network. Yeah, like end up getting of, made. And somewhere over the course of a season, yeah. Right. And of those 25 shows, like one, two, you know, maybe in a good year, four. Right. Enter the enter the, the cultural conversation of like, this is a memorable television show. And and the fact, I think it's I think it's not a coincidence, but I don't know what the, what the system is, but for how, why it is that certain years more shows are culturally resonant than other years. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's just coincidence. I think there are other factors. I mean, I think it's chaotic, but I think there yeah. are other factors. Well, there's, yeah, the whole... But I'm always fascinated by the ones that enter, especially now, the ones that enter the cultural conversation, become eligible for the canon, mm. but are not successful shows. Oh, yeah. Your um, My So-Called Life, Firefly. Firefly, yeah. Right? Shows that are definitely... That somebody might go, well, that goes in the canon. And you go, really? All seven episodes? And you go, yeah. That show yeah. doesn't matter that it was only on for... That it only got its first or episode like, order or whatever. Yeah, or like a Netflix series that only has one season and here's your oh, 13 episodes. Only needed one episode, one season, yeah. 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 So getting, getting back to your point about like how things kind of bunch up, right, in the culture, like things, what, what, why in one year do we get four TV shows that everyone thinks is important while in another year we get one? Right, yeah. And how that stacks up with like movies, right? Like, I guess a couple years ago now, there's the the surge of apocalypse movies, like post apocalyptic movies that I can't remember any of them now because I didn't actually see any of them. But I remember very clearly in the theaters seeing all the previews for like three post apocalyptic movies in different settings, right? And different kind of genres, and how those both TV and movies, like those, are coming out of an earlier moment, right? It takes a couple years for the inspiration to turn into the final product in most cases. So they're following the they're, they're following some other curve, some other zeitgeist, some other mm-hmm. condition in the culture, but then they're representing it just as a new thing is is, is coming in. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what you're saying. Like four years ago, people who were writing movies were like, you know what's gonna you know what people are gonna want to see? Movies about post-apocalyptic rescue, you know, things or the earth being destroyed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then two years ago, the movies actually come out. People go to see them. Get inspired or disinspired. Right. And yeah. then maybe, but then the, 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 the movie writers of two years ago were writing, you know, whatever's coming out now. Right. So it, it both leads and follows. So when you're putting together your inspiration, you know, list or your, or your visual mind map, for a project you're working on. Maybe the question is more for you, Will, specifically. How often do you, what proportion do you put stuff on that list that's like, this inspired the project? Mm-hmm. And what proportion is it, because I have this idea, here's here's a different direction, here's another angle or take, or here's another influence that's gonna make this not just a reflection of, I saw a bunch of apocalypse movies, I'm gonna write a, po- a post-apocalyptic game, 
and more like I had this idea for this book post-apocalyptic game but here's a romantic comedy that I really like and it's talking to me in some way so I'm going to put the DVD in my stack of books right right that's a great question because I think to me personally for a long time I had to learn to look at the negative space on my own lists on my own inspirations mm-hmm. because I would be writing lists about specifically what I want the, the, the project to do or well I guess that's pretty accurate I would make lists of what I wanted the project to do I want it to accomplish I want it to have community building I want it to be social you know highly social I want it to be for violence to be the last resort, whatever, these kind of things. Uh, and it wasn't until, I think it was while, and it's funny because I may, I may be misremembering because we've been talking about post-apocalyptic stuff, but it was in part while doing the, the early development on Raised, mm-hmm. um, which is a post-apocalyptic game for the gumshoe system, that I realized in part because the post-apocalypse is such a broad genre. It can be patina, it can be root, but it is almost never both. Sometimes mm-hmm. I mean, it can be, but more often than not, it's a rift on. Post-apocalypse is a background for a story that is about blank. Right. Or it's a post-apocalyptic story, but the environment is not that post-apocalyptic, maybe because of budget or because of a choice or whatever it is. But regardless, there are lots of different ways to, to, to for something to arrive at the designator, quote-unquote, post-apocalyptic. Mm. And that's where I started making notes that weren't to the game, but were to me, where I would write something out and then draw a circle around it, put a cross through it, put an X through it and say, so I don't need to do zombies because there are zombies around mm-hmm. in games everywhere. I don't need to do post-apocalyptic zombies because that's there are 10 games doing that kind of stuff and, and doing it better than I would be able to pull it off in this particular mode anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, good and bad, whatever. Volume is not in itself a bad thing, but the fact is that well, they, you, they don't need me to make another one. It's like you're hitting a patch of ice and you can turn into the skid or right. you can try and, and turn out of the skid and... You know, it might be easier to do it one way because you have all of these or more fulfilling or or more interesting to you to do it one way because you're part of this wave. You're like, oh, all these zombie games. Here's my take on it. Right. I'm part of that conversation. Right. That'd be totally legit. Right. And then there's maybe what might be a little more fraught decision to be like, well, definitely no zombies. That's overdone. Don't want to have have it in my game. And then you have to fill that hole or be like, how do these other games still impact that decision right well to me i guess the which is i I think the metaphor is very sound is if once you hit the ice you have to decide if you're going to slide turn into the slide or not right but the difference is if 10 people if you just watch the 10 cars ahead of you hit the ice and make it and some of them ended up dinged up and some of them came through beautifully or whatever that means that i have the option of hopefully just steering around the ice yeah and that's kind of the thing that that in this case right what's trying to do is say okay well it looks like there's also i mean and let's use the movie metaphor. Sometimes it's a matter of saying, look, there's been 10 zombie movies or 10 superhero movies in a year. So even though I have a superhero movie I'm going to do, because they are coming out now, that means that they were selling like crazy four years ago. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's now's not the time to try to sell one. Similar with games. or And, and sell isn't the only thing, right? But sometimes it has to do with just the fact how many yeah. other uh, new games of type zombie or a type post-apoc or whatever mm-hmm. it is, do I want on the shelf next to me at once? And the shelf is proverbial, but is... You know, that they're all going to come out and people are going to go, oh, so yeah, you made which of the zombie post-apocalyptic games was yours? Right. That's a, that's that, that could be a tough situation to be in. And I don't, and I, also, I know me personally, I'm not, I don't deal well with that question. Right. So. Well, and also not necessarily something you have control over. Exactly. You do your thing, you get really excited about it. And then the week before you were going to launch your thing, another thing launches and it's in the same realm and you're right. like... Come on, and that's and that's why I think that the metaphor from the of the, the the movie the cyclical development of movies isn't quite what we're seeing when it comes to canon or or cultural resonance of television and games. Right, is because I don't know if it's true in indie publishing per se for games, but it's definitely true in like homebrew stuff. 
is when you, when a movie comes out and you and you watch all the forums say, "How do I play this movie?" Right. Right. When and, Mad Max, when Fury Road came out, when Fury Road came out. Which, everyone was like, out, "How do you? Which, how do I play?" Or not not just how do I play Fury Road, but right? What are all the different ways I can play Fury Road? Or what are all, uh, one of the great ways to phrase this question? I can't remember what movie it was that started doing it that I love, but was essentially how many different RPGs are present in this film? Oh, yeah. Which is my, my preferred way now to think about yeah. it is because the notion is, well, this this sequence was done in Fate and this sequence was done in Savage Worlds and this sequence was mm-hmm. done in Apocalypse World and this sequence was right. done in, right? And, and, the, then and they, the, they brought Car Wars in over here. And they brought here. Car Wars in. Yeah. And, that, and that helps demonstrate, I think, the fact that no thing, whether it's a movie or an RPG, is, is first of all, as, as Jeff Vandermeer says, everybody you know is more than one thing, but also right. no thing is more than, is, is only one thing. Mm-hmm. So Apocalypse World isn't necessarily the right game for everything in Fury Road, but you can do everything in Fury Road and Apocalypse World. I don't want to say right, but as you know, so, some parts of it's going to have to stretch and contort a little bit, yeah. and some parts it's going to be right at home. Mm-hmm. Similar, similarly, Car Wars is not going to do everything Fury Road does, and some parts it's going to do aces, and other parts it's going to have to, you're going to have to bolt on your own stuff. Right. Similar with whatever game you're going to pick for. Mm-hmm. And that's because these things are not analogs. Even even Apocalypse World and Fury Road are not analogs, right? No. And if they're not, then nothing is. Right. <laughs> The fact that they don't that they're not completely an, uh, uh, analogous, mm. I think means that whereas the the cycle of inspiration to release to inspiration inspiration becomes a thing which is released which inspires a thing which is released which inspires a thing which is released mm. drawn out over time and then those are interpolated with other cycles of other things being inspired and released. I think the thing that causes three or four releases at a time to be in conversation with each other and therefore and then hit the the the, the, the sort of a, a degree of cultural resonance is the fact they happen to come out in the same year, which is often but not always coincidental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, the clustering. Yeah. It's like asking how does something go viral, yeah. right? Oh, and, and we want our ad campaign to go viral. Oh, well, let me flip the switch. Let me add the powder that makes it go right. viral. But, you know, but that said, there are strategies that more reliably result in a viral thing than other strategies. Yes. Like there are people and companies who specialize in giving it the best chance to go viral. Yes, cuz I've worked with some 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 outlets where that happens in where, where somebody says we we can we can get this thing to go viral and mm-hmm. I'm like so you're going to you know, what double its chances to 20%. Right. Because it's just not a control because the thing is the number of decisions that have to go into something going viral. Oh yeah. The majority of those decisions are made after the release of the thing that goes viral. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> so, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. It's just more the it's more the one of the things that you learn, I think, as a designer over time is how to make the choices that are going to give your thing the best chance. The best of chance. Success. I absolutely agree with that. Right? Yeah. You can't ever guarantee success, and nor can you guarantee that something won't be a success. I mean, other than not releasing it. Right. Right. But there's always a chance that it's something that you just slough off. You're like, oh, here's this idea. I'm just going to throw it up on a web page. No one's ever going to read it, but it'll be there. Right. And then some influencer finds it, and then all of a sudden that's what people are playing at conventions, right? And it's like, right. didn't think that would happen. So it works both ways. But there's a, a certain number of mindful decisions you can make yeah. for your project that are going to do that doubling of that low chance. Well, or, or I mean, sometimes doubling even a better chance, right? Viral yeah. is in many ways, I think, I, actually I brought it up and it's a bad example because viral is such, such a random, such a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. Whereas, can I get role players to find out my thing came out? There right. is an element of chance, mm-hmm. but it is not un- completely unknown territory. Like, can I get my thing on drive through? I can control that. I can put it on drive through. Right. Can I get it listed at RPG Geek? Yes. 
right? It will be mm -hmm. listed. It will be present. Right. It will so be searchable. You can make that decision. Can I release yeah. it in an era when Google exists? Yes, I can do that. Can so, I do SEO on my webpage? Yes, I can do that. And these are all increasing mm -hmm. the odds, right? So during the design process, bringing this back into the, yeah. the, the cultural currency and the, the ongoing evolving conversation, similar to what we were talking about in the more recent ideas episode, how do you bring in the influences that are going to create those better chances for you without going crazy because there are so many potential influences that you could bring in. And, and there's an artificiality you risk if you just like, you know, right. you, you try with, to make a game after, after the force awakens comes out and it's clear that all you're doing yeah. is just getting a coloring book and coloring. And, and right. And that's the, color. that's yeah. the balance. How do you, Formula, yeah. how do you, cause those, cause those influences do affect the success of your game, yeah. both artistically and commercially. Yeah. Not that those are the only success, but just using those as, as a couple examples. So how do you bring in the stuff that raises your chances of success for your game without flipping over into just pastiching right. this grab bag of influences? Right. To me, what's interesting is I know of two kind of philosophies about about how you do it. Mm -hmm. One of them is the notion, right, which is that yeah, how do you get kids to eat their vegetables? It helps if it's the only thing on the plate. Mm -hmm. You, you make them eat their vegetables, and then if they're good, they can have dessert. So what you say is and, – and the thing is, I don't think you can do this unless you are already at that place where people are going to – people are curious whatever it is you're making next. Mm -hmm. Because you can then make a game that's really, really tough, that's really – that people are like, man, it's a hard game to love, but I love it. Create a thing that is – that in which its importance or its relevance or its – uniqueness i guess even it's innovation these sorts of things make it so that you have that people want to play it and then they find out whether or not it's good mm -hmm. but i think the more common and the easier and the more more attainable version of that is that you boy i can't think of a metaphor here that's not pejorative but is the where you where you put the pill in the cheese but the thing is that the, one of the beauties that we have in rpgs is that we can be more honest and upfront and i i would argue have to about that going on with with our audience once they have the product mm -hmm. than any other medium. Well, how often do you hear about the killer app, right? Or the yeah. or the, the stealable tech out of the game. Right. And how often is that in that metaphor, that pill? Uh, you know, like, oh, I, I I love Ghostbusters. I'm gonna play Inspectors. Great. You can you can riff off of your viewing of Ghostbusters and play your Zany Investigator. And then you play a couple sessions and you go, oh, you know what's really interesting about this game is how our company is what gains experience mm -hmm. and not the characters and how we're actually kind of a family in that way. And it's the it's our, our general welfare overall. It's moving out of the firehouse. Right. Right. Is actually kind of like the goal of long-term play. And then that's the piece that ends up I stole for worldwide wrestling and how the promotion game right. gains and advances but if you're like oh let's play inspectors you're gonna level up your investigation company that's what this game is all about right that's a different audience that you're gonna pull to that game maybe a more narrow one right then hey who, show of hands who here loves ghostbusters right right now i think that's interesting in that inspectors is is, is a curious example because i think you're right about inspectors i don't know about the frequency of I'm actually now I'm trying to I'm racking my brain trying to figure this out. I think it's fascinating to look at when the what the medicine the dosage whatever we're going to call it when the when the medicine and the killer app align and when they diverge. Sure, yeah, yeah. Because I think that's interesting to see how for example a lot of times the killer app I think is the dessert. It's the it's the candy with the medicine in it. And not in a bad way. That's mm. totally legit, but right mm. where somebody says, "Hey, I've got 
I've got three badass new classes for Pathfinder or for D&D 5 or for whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you, and you're like, oh, great, I, I can play the Witch Hunter and I can play the Druid or the, the Meta Druid or whatever it is, the, whatever these three new classes are. And you want them because they're, they're fiction. And then when you sit down to play them, playing them reveals the message or the idea or the structure. I'm, message is even pretty, pretty heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. But the thing that you go... Oh, this is a really historical version of like a witch hunter. This is a this this character is kind of a, like fun sure, to play, yeah. but kind of not a great guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in which case, that that's an example of kind of where they diverge. Right? And I think in some ways, inspectors. Is, mm-hmm. And similarly, I've seen people uh, uh, sell other players, sell both literally and, and figuratively, inspectors on the the confessional mechanic, the talking yeah. head mechanic, right? Right. Which is probably historically the more stolen. Part. I mean, I use steel as a as a yeah. uh, in a friendly like we all steal from each other because yeah. that's the nature of our work. But uh, the the more adopted into other games part yeah. of inspectors and is the confessional. Historically, that's also what I identify as its killer app. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I'm right. I mean, you're like it's probably more more so than by volume, more but maybe not intensity. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's more was on my mind particularly. But yes, that is that is another piece that is is both striking in play and memorable. And then can be taken and, and used in other kinds of games very easily, I think. Yeah. What games inspire which games and how long does it take us to get to certain right. topics? Mm-hmm. For example, when you look at all the stuff that Vincent and or Vincent and Meg can do with, with Apocalypse World, mm-hmm. why why start with the apocalypse as the genre and not start with something else using the same mechanism? Because clearly the mechanics are using a ton of different things. Right. Why start with that? I'm not going to puzzle that out. I mean, I, they've written about this, I'm sure. In fact, I know, mm-hmm. but I don't have the, I'm not going to try to cite anything because I don't have it in my head. But there's a there's sort of a meta overarching process over, uh, uh, about dessert and vegetables or medicine and candy and stuff, which is, I don't think Night Witches becomes possible until Powered by the Apocalypse is in its face already accessibly candy coated. Because if Night Witches had a system that I didn't know and was mm-hmm. Night Witches, Sure. Right. It would have us. It would be regarded the way Grey Ranks was regarded, which is to say, brilliant. And I don't know that I'm ever going to play it. Well, and Night Witch is like, and Jason has has stated that you know he he'd been trying to figure out Night Witches for a long time. Yeah. He had shelved designs about how to do that game, and then using Powered by the Apocalypse is is what turned the key. Yeah. For that particular project, sometimes there's a literal combination of game design technology. Mm-hmm. That enters your vision, uh, or enters your 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 um, your knowledge, and it's what does it right. It turns the key. It makes the last puzzle piece fall into place, or right. or whatever. And then sometimes you end up uh, collaging bits and pieces from not only games but all these other influences. And I think that's many times the real design work you end up doing is filling in those negative spaces that you've that you were talking about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, and I think that has that dynamic where, I mean, not only so in this case, not only was, was the rule set a catalyst for getting the game to come together, mm. but it's also the fact that, that for all the talk that I've, that I've been doing about vegetables and dessert or that, I've, or that uh, negative space and cyclical inspiration we, and everything. We, we've mixed a lot of metaphors well, here. No, which I think is important because this is, again, nothing is like this but this. Right. In a, in a, to a degree, we're talking about accessibility, both for the designer and for the audience, which is to say that if, if, mm-hmm. if I have a great game and nobody wants to play it, but even if they know and believe that it is great, but they don't want to play it, the game has lost something, specifically actual players. May, right. I may have picked up customers and not players. And mm-hmm. if I want players more than customers or I want them both equally or whatever it is, mm-hmm. then like I have a problem. In, like in my experience, I love Burning Wheel. I still have yet to 
play a functional, long-term, mm-hmm. enjoyable game of Burning Wheel. It just I just haven't managed to make that happen. And this is and this is the but area it's where, clearly a great game, right? As it one because it, it is exquisite at what it does. And Burning Wheel does not have this particular problem because lots of people do play it and have fun, but. You know, there's there's a there's a dividing line. There's always going to be more people attracted to your game that can act, than will end up actually playing it. I think. And I think, uh, 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 and yeah, Burning Wheel shows part of what part of what I'm getting at in in an interesting way, which is to say that that when you add in Mouse Guard players, or you add in Burning mm-hmm. Empires players, mm-hmm. or what have you, right, you end up with with a fascinating different kind of stained glass window of different kind of people who would never play Burning Wheel but will play Mouse Guard or vice versa or what have you, right? Uh, that are kind of brought together, which is great. But if you consider the fact that it's not that it, part of it's about accessibility. Part of it is also about nourishment. I was going to say satisfaction, but mm-hmm. this is, goes beyond that, which is to say that if I tell you I've bought you a, I have made for you a perfectly balanced food pyramid honoring meal, that in itself is only going to get certain people interested in it. If I say that's my a recipe that I got from my grandparents, now other people want to try it, right? And if I and so while it is in fact nourishing, and it is not just if- junk food. I may also then have to put sausage gravy on it to get certain people to eat it, mm-hmm. right? Now, that's bad if it's a dish that doesn't go with gravy. <laughs> but if it's a dish that goes great with gravy and is also nourishing, mm-hmm. then I've th- then you're arriving at something, and this is where the food stuff metaphor I was going to say is going to go crazy, sure. that is both candy and nourishment. And that's why I say vegetable and dessert, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily about medicine. Mm-hmm. Because that implies that I know what's better for somebody than they do. And that's not, that's not the kind of thing that this is, right? I'm not somebody's doctor. Right. What it is is about nourishment. It's in that notion that it's good for you, that, which, again, doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. That's not, gonna, it's tasteless, yeah. not flavorless, whatever. But it's say, both good for you and delicious. Yeah. I mean, I, in this case, I would maybe translate good for you into it, it delivers a unique play experience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a kind of, yeah, I think that's nourishing. And whether that's... Whether your particular engagement with it is positive or negative, that's it's going to be different for everyone. But sure, the idea that yeah, this is why I'm trying to steer away from medicine. Yeah, right? because like for example, I think gray ranks and night gray ranks and night witches are both in a way medicinal mm-hmm. in a great way, which is in the sense that I am better uh, uh, for having read them. Mm-hmm. Like I'm more thoughtful as a designer for having read right. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Whether I get to even even withholding how much I get to play them, but is that uh uh. But they are nourishing on top. They're also absolutely nourishing, which is that, that and, and that can be done in the sense of, hey, I've never thought about elves this way before. Or it can be done in the sense of, mm. uh, there are so many mechanics from this that I, I'm inspired by. Mm. Or I finally know how to phrase and portray this thing at the table in a way that I didn't. And what I mean when I said that, that we can be honest with our audience in a way that almost no other medium can right. about we this. We don't have that, to trick people into doing this. Right. We can say outright, whether we're talking about our own game or somebody else's, mm. that this, this, the mechanics here are going to deliver. Yeah. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to you're going to be full at the end of this meal and you're right. going to be delighted. But you're also you're going to love the way it tastes. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we've we've gotten off into into a, a pretty abstract area for this discussion. Let's let's bring it back down. So how does navigating this diverse set of cultural influences and picking your battles about what is going to be in these these food metaphors, what is what what is going to be the main attraction? What's going to be the main course? What's going to be mm-hmm. the dessert? What's going to be the oh, I didn't know you could put rosemary on top of right. uh, Atlantic cod. These all these uh, all these ingredients, all these different elements of of the of the meal, if you will. Well, I, I think we can bring. I do think we can use that to bring this to ground. Okay, to bring this back to earth, which is that 
the two ways I think that are important is one is to, I was like, the two ways to do it, and I think you can start with either one and then keep an eye on the other one and you're gonna kind of hop back and forth. So there's no wrong way to start, but is that um, one is to limit the number of conversations you were trying to have at once with your thing. Yes. To reduce it down to, hey, so I'm specifically, th- I, right now all I'm worrying about is whether or not this game functionally and respectfully d- represents the fighter pilots and sleep disorders that the game's about. Right. And that is is always going back to your initial vision for the game. Right. And your creative inspiration for the game. Right. Like keeping that. And that can be a matter of going back to the mind map and literally mm-hmm. writing question marks or crossing stuff out for now. Or, you know, and if you can, Xerox your damn mind map because you should go over it like 20 times. But mm-hmm. uh, and saying, oh, you know what? Today I'm not worrying about I'm not worrying about fighter pilot mechanics. I'm worrying about about insomnia. Right. Or whatever it is. Yeah. The other thing then I think is that when you is is controlling what you then add to it. And this is where the cooking metaphor comes back into it, but it becomes very actionable. It becomes very, I think, tangible is that if you're trying to perfect a recipe, which is what we're doing, right. you're going to have a lot of instances of it before you start serving it to people. Yes. You know, I, ma- I make this uh, uh, pasta carbonara at home and I've made it 10 times where it was terrible, two times where it was great. I don't invite people over to have it just because I got it right once. So what you do is you say, you know what? I'm just going to put all the spices I have in my kitchen into this thing. I'm going to put every idea I have into this one game. I see how it turns out. Well, sooner or later, you're going to have to just start the next time you make it, the next edition, the next iteration, you're going to start pulling stuff out. Right. So better to just add them one at a time and taste it. Add them one at a time and taste it mm-hmm. so that you know. And so to me, that's a matter of controlling the instances and the inspirations, not necessarily that are affecting you, but that you're channeling back into the thing, if that right. makes sense. So and that can be as simple as when you decide what era fighter pilots am I talking right. about. And then checking that against how it affects the theme. So this may be most helpful to think about if you're in that stage, which I know I go through with pretty much everything I work on, where you're like, I am overwhelmed, like not necessarily by like the number of of words that I have or whatever, but it's more just you're like cognitively, I'm overwhelmed by the sheer amount of possibilities that are in front of me at this moment. Like I have my inspiration. It's going to be about insomniac fighter pilots, but I have now sketched out ways to do that in World War One and World War Two, right, right, and uh, arguably, you know, arguably with gyrocopters in a fantasy setting. But like, here's a system for bringing in like your backstory, personal life, and here's a system for the the politics of the bunker, how you and all these people spend the time together, and here's a master system for for using your flights to affect how the war goes. And here's a system for how the, the planes actually shoot at each other. And here's a system for staying up all night. And here's another system for staying up all night because I read Don't Rise <laughs> Your Head and I got inspired. And right. And you're just like, how do you choose? And when do I stop? Yeah. And when do you stop? <laughs> when do you go, okay, the, the game is just about this. Yeah. Sometimes that choice comes out through playtesting, mm-hmm. right? It comes out through inviting people over and they try and like, well, you actually, you put a lot of rosemary on this, <laughs> on on this, this cod. On this cod. And you're like, hmm, yeah, that's a good point. I put a little bit and it was delicious, so I kept putting it on. But sometimes that's playtesting, but I think there's a there's a point when you're still working through your, your initial process where you can draw some lines and maybe a way to, to, to cut out material cognitively so you can just focus on what's in front of you is being like, where did I get that idea from? Mm-hmm. Did I get it from, like, did I get this, my my thing affects the overall arc of this war from this board game that I played that had this cool mechanic and I thought that was really fun. Maybe that's more of a four-hour board game thing. And maybe my Insomniac fighter pilots don't need to be about the overall arc, arc of the war. So I'll set that aside. 
And things can be expansions, things can be mini supplements, things can be can loop back around and fit back in at a later part of the process. Right. Once you have a clearer sense of what you're doing. So yeah, maybe analyzing your 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 list of influences and cherry picking the ones that are that you're really excited about and mesh well and maybe setting aside the ones that you brought in because you were really excited about, but you kind of already forgot about or you know, that turns out this is a great idea for a different game. Exactly. That's, I get that a lot. Yeah. Where for me, I tell myself at least, that's 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 what I tell myself to make it easier to kill my darlings, make it easier to cut this stuff out, mm-hmm. is to say, well, that sword fighting mechanic can be a card game or something someday. And in part, we're lucky in our field because it's harder to do that with a novel or a screenplay or what have you because if it, if it grew organically out of your characters, we don't have our characters yet. If it grew organically out of the characters then it's hard. It's, it, you still have to cut it, but it's hard to then get it reused necessarily. Sure. Right? Whereas with a mechanic, if it's a solid mechanic, it does a thing well. It just may not necessarily belong in the thing that, I, that, that, that it was next to when I invented it. Right. Yeah, I think that's one of, the, one of the great joys and one of the reasons to do things like go ahead and just keep your notes in some file or mm-hmm. keep a notebook with these ideas that don't make it further down the line. Is because every so often you go riffling through that stuff and you get re-inspired. Yeah. And they turn into another game and it's better than the first thing. Not not necessarily better than the first game, but like the first idea you had for the battles impacting war, there's a whole game there. And you can do that game and it's a truer vision of that idea than trying to bolt it on to the fighter pilot game. So, And when you're doing or redoing the mind mapping, Right, that you've mm-hmm. you, you've cut some stuff out, and so now you're re you, you've gone from let's say eight spokes to four, and so you've got four key parts to your game coming off the center idea of insomniacs and fighter pilots, whatever it is. It's also I think viable to stop and say if I was going to teach this game to somebody today tonight for a play test, where do I start, and then which and what do I do next, and what do I do mm-hmm. next, and what do I do next, and that's often when I do that is it helps me identify first of all if I'm putting off hub number four or hub number five because it's least important, how least important are we talking about? Do I need to use it at all? Mm-hmm. And what happens if I don't? And so we'll try a play test where we don't use it and maybe it needs to go back and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just needs to be spiced up or beefed up or made more conversant with the rest of the game or its neighbors or whatever it is. But that's especially true when I have too many hubs and I say, Ugh, I won't even get into. Well, then maybe you just shouldn't even get into mm. hub number five yeah. or spoke number five or whatever it is. Mm. Um, so when I think about teaching it, that certainly tells me whether or not something is ready for play testing. It helps me figure that out is when I go, I don't even know like it's going to take me 20 minutes to explain it. Well, then maybe I want to keep polishing it. This is going to take me 20 minutes to explain, and it's probably not going to come up anyway. Right, (laughs) right. Put that one off a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, and then find out if it was actually necessary. Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating or review on your pod listening apparatus of choice. To discuss the podcast or things related to the podcast, such as game design, you can search for the Design Games Podcast community at Google+, or you can find the link at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...